With all of that said, let's pray together. Lord, it is a weighty thing to be tasked with teaching your word and to stand in front of your people dependent on the same grace and dependent on the same spirit and dependent on the same word. Um, And Lord, I, I thank you for the opportunity to do that and I pray that what is taught here this morning would be in accordance with your word that it would please you and honor you, that your word would be effective in what you have promised that it would do, which is refine your people and cut like a double-edged sword and strengthen the weary and encourage and exhort and rebuke. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be present with us in this time as we study your word and that your spirit would minister to us in all of those ways. And we do thank you so much for these resources that you have given to us, your people. Your word that makes us wise. Your spirit that gives us endurance for this race that we're on. For your body, the fellowship of believers that encourages us. God, we thank you so much for all of these things that you have done to provide for us as we pursue Jesus. And I thank you that At the end, you will carry us home because you are faithful. You will complete the good work that you have begun in us in spite of the fact that we are often conflicted and torn, in spite of the fact that we continue to wrestle with indwelling sin and the flesh that's so weak. And we thank you so much for your love for us. I pray that you would comfort us with it this morning. In Christ's name, amen. All right, hopefully you're with me in Genesis 33. We've uh, been making our way through Genesis, and we've been following for the last couple of months now this guy, Jacob. Uh, Jacob has finally left Haran in the east, and he is, uh, after 20 years away from the land of Canaan, today he's finally going to re-encounter his brother, Jacob. His twin brother, we should say. And the last time that Jacob and Esau were together, you probably remember Esau was plotting to kill Jacob. And so Esau is now about to see his brother again and he has no idea what's in store for him. One thing that Jacob has going for him though is that God has promised to be with him. God has proven himself to be faithful, to be on Jacob's side through thick and thin. Um, But we saw last week that God's blessing to be with Jacob is a little bit ambiguous uh, because Jacob wrestled with the angel of God and uh, at the end of that, he pleaded with the Lord to bless him and the blessing that he received was a wound. It was a limp and a strange new name that he would wrestle with God. It would have been nice if after asking for God to bless him, Uh, Jacob would have been given something like Hulk strength to go fight his brother, you know, or he would have been given a legion of angels to command in response to the 400 men that Esau is bringing with him to this meeting. But instead, Jacob is given more weakness, an injury, more dependence upon God. And that leaves him in this place where now as he encounters his brother Esau, he really has No way to run from him because he's got a limp and no resources with which to defeat him. If things go bad, he is entirely in the hands of God. 
So let's read Genesis 33, picking up in verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So Jacob divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given to your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? And Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly, at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But Jacob said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. So as this chapter opens up, it, it looks to me as if Jacob's plan for encountering his brother Esau has shifted a little bit. Maybe you remember last week he sent them, I think, north across the, the river Jacob, uh, Jabbok to keep them away from, from Esau. But I think in light of his wrestling with God, he's altered the plan a little bit. He thinks that maybe it's not going to go quite as bad as he initially thought when he meets Esau. So instead of keeping his family away from Esau entirely... Jacob reunites the two camps that he had split them into, and then he organizes them into sort of three waves. And if that's correct in how we should understand the actions of Jacob in the first couple of verses of chapter 33 here, then I think we see a conflicted man in the text. He seems to have grown in his trust for God to the point where he's not entirely opposed to bringing his family to meet Esau. But his faith is not so strong as to abandon 
organizing his family in such a way that if something does go wrong, he has a, an escape plan and his most favored family members are protected just in case God doesn't show up for him. And I think two things kind of come to mind at this point. First, you can tell a lot about a person by the way they organize their family, can't you? You can tell a lot about a person by the way that they choose to organize their family. Anyone observing Jacob's actions here in verse 2 can see that Jacob prioritizes Rachel and Joseph over his other family members. And I want to point this out because I wonder how our actions might reveal what we prioritize in our lives. If someone were to evaluate the way that your calendar is laid out or the way that your budget is laid out, the way that you spend your time or the way that you spend your money, would it be obvious to them in the way that you organize your life that you prioritize God in the midst of all the other things that you have going on? See, it's really clear that Jacob loves Rachel and Joseph more than anything else. Because of his actions, he puts them in the place of most security. And so for us, is it obvious from our actions that we love God more than anything else? Does the money we spend on things like comfort or hobbies or our debts expose that we actually prioritize those things over God? Does the time that we spend on driving our kids to their various sports activities and commitments or the entertainment that we spend our time engaging in or the personal achievements that we're pursuing, do all of these things indicate that we prioritize them over God? Now don't misunderstand, like I tell you often, these things are not in and of themselves wrong. They're not inherently bad. We don't have to prove our love for God by giving every minute of every day and every dollar that we earn to him. Okay? We don't need to become monks and impoverished, destitute people to prove that we love God. I'm only suggesting that it would be wise for us to regularly evaluate the way that we have prioritized things in our lives to make sure that our actions actually prove what we say with our lips, that we love God. God, that he is the treasure of our hearts and not something else. And it's obvious from Jacob's actions that Rachel and Joseph are his priority. Is it obvious from our actions that God is our priority? But the second thing I noticed concerning Jacob's wavering actions here, remember at one point he he sent his family away to keep them safe. And now he's going to bring them back together and he's going to have them follow him, but he's going to do it in waves. He's, he's kind of trusting, but not untrusting. Jacob, I think, in his actions here shows that he's a man of uncertain faith. As I mentioned last week, I think Jacob is a man who is still in process in learning to trust this God, Yahweh. At some moments, he seems to have great faith. And at other moments, he seems to lose faith. And he reverts back to his prior way of operating, which is he's always kind of got a plan in place if things don't go the way that he anticipates. 
And we too are conflicted people like this, aren't we? I mean, as my wife was reading Romans 7, could you recognize any of your own experience in those verses? We vacillate between faith and doubt. In the pressure cooker that life often is, we can quickly find ourselves wondering, is God really going to come through for me in this situation? This seems a little bit out of control. Is, is God really strong enough, good enough, wise enough to do something in the midst of this situation? Can I actually trust this God here? Maybe one place to illustrate this right now is, is the workplace. And I was trying to think of an example that is pertinent and this one came to mind, so maybe it doesn't apply to you, but I think it does apply to some people. We just went through what I would call is the secular high holiday of Pride Month last month. And in light of Pride Month, many large employers are pressuring their employees to do things that might make us as Christians uncomfortable. Put your pronouns in your email address or email signature go through the diversity and equity training to make sure that you're sufficiently inclusive of all different kinds of lifestyles. Maybe attend some kind of allyship meeting to show that you are a, a good ally to this movement. And those kinds of pressures might make us wonder, if I were to actually stand for my convictions here, something so small as even just putting my pronouns in my email and say, I'm not going to do that because God made them male and female. Could I lose my job for that? Do we have sufficient faith to believe that if we were to stand on our convictions and choose not to put those pronouns in the signature and we were to lose our job that God would actually come through for us? And it may seem like a silly thing to you, depending on where you work, but um, I think that maybe for some people in this room, they can actually relate to this. And the answer to this dilemma is I think that we should be not like Joseph or, or Jacob, who seems to kind of vacillate here, but like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know that story from the book of Daniel? In a great act of courage and faith when they're commanded by King Nebuchadnezzar to bow down to the idol that he has made or be cast into the furnace that he has ramped up to be full blast, they reply to that king, our God will save us from your threats. But even if he doesn't, we won't bow to you. These men are a heroic example because they recognize God can save them, but he may not save them. And no matter what he does, they're not going to abandon their faith in him. As for Jacob, I think he's a man who still lacks faith. Because rather than wholeheartedly trust the God who has promised to be with him, he keeps plotting as if God is not his shield and his protector. So let me say regarding this particular example, if you stand for Jesus Christ and his word and what it teaches and you seek to honor Christ and as a result you face employment persecution at your job, if you were to lose your job as a result of that, I want you to know that our church family is here to take care of you. 
and I mean that sincerely, one of the ways in which God has your back is he has brought you to this church community. And we would love to care for you through something difficult like that. We would love to pray for you. We would love to financially support you. If there's anyone here who were to lose their job because of their Christian convictions, you would find a whole church body standing behind you. Now, I don't think we're quite to that point where you're going to lose your job over pronouns in the signature line of your email. And things could always change for the better. Maybe it won't ever come to that. But the big idea here is that God is with you through whatever difficulty you bear in the name of Christ. That is insured. And one of the vehicles through which God will be with you is through the support and mercy of your brothers and sisters in our church. Your responsibility is to simply obey God and trust him with whatever the outcome might be. He's trustworthy. Be steadfast of heart in the way that you look to him to work out the details. And it might be necessary for God to put you through something like that in order to teach you greater humility. Notice in verse 3, as Jacob approaches his brother Esau, he bows to the ground, not once, not twice, not three times, seven times. And if you remember way back in chapter 27, verse 29, when Isaac blessed Jacob, do you remember what Isaac said? Isaac said to his son Jacob that other nations would serve him and would bow down to him. And God said back in chapter 25 concerning the prophecy of these two twins that the older would serve the younger, that Esau would in fact serve Jacob. But before that happens... Look what's required of Jacob. God is going to make this man learn humility. He's going to make him bow his face to the ground. Not only before God, but before his brother. And this is true for us as well, because to trust God is to bow yourself in humility before him. To trust God is to bow to him in humility. We learn this lesson in Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that although Jesus was God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself before the Father, entrusting himself to the hands of the Father, even to the point not only of becoming a man, even though he was God, but to the point of going to the cross and suffering the humiliation of death. And it was after that, that God exalted him. The point is that for us as Christians, we have been promised greatness. We've actually been promised that we will get to rule and reign with Christ for all eternity. Go look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 26. But before we receive that promise in full, we have to learn to get on our face before God in humility, to suffer even humiliation before men. And so as Christians, we understand that humility comes before true greatness and we are not ashamed then to be humbled by God. 
Now, fortunately for Jacob, we find out in verse 4 that his life is not actually in any real danger, although he anticipates danger as he goes to meet his brother. When Esau sees Jacob in verse 4, instead of drawing his sword and telling his men to attack his brother, Jacob, or uh, sorry, Esau runs to Jacob and Esau embraces his brother. And Esau kisses his brother, and together they weep. This is a really precious moment. It's a beautiful scene of reconciliation. It's the kind of reconciliation that I hope you get to experience in your life if you have broken relationships. Tragically, though, for Jacob and Esau, the tender moment doesn't last long. There's no mention of them setting up camp to spend an evening together or sharing a meal together. It's a quick moment, but it's still powerful. And I can't help but wonder what they weep for. Are they weeping for the years that they lost, the brotherhood that was wasted between these two twins? Do they weep because of the joy that they're experiencing in being reunified? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But I do think that there is a powerful truth at work here, which is that when bitterness and strife are broken, tears often follow. That's been my personal experience doing pastoral ministry, pastoral care and counseling with people. I've seen this reality at work often. When God brings healing and reconciliation between people that are divided The release of the bitterness and strife, it often comes with a flow of weeping, a flow of tears. And it's only right because the mending of what's been torn apart and divided, that is a powerful and precious thing, isn't it? The story of Genesis, the story of all of Scripture, the story of all of human history is this story, the story of God bringing back together that which has been torn asunder. Right relationship between God and man. Right relationship between man and man. Right relationship between creation and man. The way that God originally designed it. God is restoring all these things. Through Christ, he is making them all new. And that is a beautiful story of God's redemptive power. And at the end of human history... That restoration will be made permanent for all eternity, fixed through the resurrection, making right the wrongs of the past. That's a beautiful thing. But unfortunately for Jacob and Esau, the moment they share, like I mentioned, is fleeting. And here's one of the things that I find most strange about this passage. Did you notice this as we were reading? In this chapter, Esau turns out to be the more commendable, more virtuous character. Whereas Jacob, I think, appears really kind of untrusting and standoffish and kind of cold. Did you pick up on that? As I was studying this passage over this last week, uh, the, the parable of the prodigal son came to mind, found in Luke 15. But I wasn't reminded of that parable because of Jacob. I was reminded of that parable because of Esau. You probably know the story of the prodigal son. It's about a man who has two sons and 
one of the sons comes to the father and basically says, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance. And the father says, okay. And the son goes off and he squanders it. And after living in destitution for a while, he remembers the goodness of his father. And he decides to journey back home, not knowing exactly what he'll find when he gets there. But the text tells us that when the boy was a long way off, the father looked and saw him. And in Luke 15, 20, Jesus describes the actions of the father and says, But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Very much the same set of actions that Esau engages in. Esau forgives Jacob. And when he sees his brother limping towards him, he runs to warmly embrace him and kiss him like the father in Jesus' parable. And the scene, I think, is very strange because Jacob is God's chosen one in this set of twins. So we might expect that Jacob would be the one who would be acting in a way that honors God, that's honorable, that reflects the character, the tenderheartedness of God and joy in the reconciliation. But it's actually Esau. Esau, the dangerous one who was ill-treated, the older brother who was robbed of his inheritance. It's Esau who displays tenderheartedness and love, the gracious behavior. And so again, I think we see that the human condition, it's complex. It's strange, isn't it? I do love the way that the Bible so honestly deals with this aspect of what it means to be a fallen human. In passages like Romans 7 that we read, in characters like David, who's called a man after God's own heart and yet is screwed up in so many ways. And in this scene, we see Jacob, who has every reason to trust God. He's a mixed bag of fear and faith. And Esau, who's kind of supposed to be the the lurking bad guy, the shadow of unknown danger, once defined by his murderous anger, he's now painted in this scene with kindness and sincerity. And I guess my reason for touching on this is just to point out again our need to be humble before God. In the story of human history, there's only one man, one character who's pure and blameless, who's totally praiseworthy in all of his actions. That's Jesus. The rest of us are a mixed bag, aren't we? We're caught up somewhere in there between Jacob and Esau and we don't even understand the kind of people that we are. Sometimes we're faithful and other times we're faithless. Sometimes we're angry and other times we're tender. Sometimes we act nobly and other times we act shamefully. Sometimes we're driven by selfishness and other times we're driven by selflessness. And the takeaway here is that at all times we are desperately in need of God's grace. Who can save us from these things, Paul writes? Who can save us from our judgmentalism, our self-righteousness, our anger, our greed, our pride, our bitterness, our daily inconsistency? That we can go from one moment to have words that come out of our mouth that praise God and in the next moment 
words that are shameful. Only Christ. Only Christ can truly transform us from our lowly brokenness to be like his beautiful excellence. And so I would call us as a church, each of us individually, to just be self-aware enough to know how desperately we each need God's grace to sustain us on a daily basis. Are you self-aware enough to know that? You need that grace. I need that grace. As for Jacob, despite his standoffishness, and maybe he doesn't run to his brother because he can't run, but he does some other things in the text that are kind of like, Jacob, why are you behaving like this? But despite his standoffishness, he clearly does appreciate Esau's kindness to him. He offers this gift of restitution, the flocks and herds that he sent to meet his brother on the way. He declares that seeing the face of Esau is reminiscent of encountering the face of God after that wrestling match. Is it possible that what Jacob means there is that the kindness of Esau reminds him of the kindness of God? I think that's kind of what he's getting at. And quite like the kindness of God that Jacob has experienced in wave after wave after wave in his life, Esau offers, I think, wave after wave after wave of kindness to Jacob here. Esau shows genuine interest in Jacob's family. He asks him about his children. He tries to refuse the gift that Jacob is pressing upon him, declaring that he has no need for Jacob's riches, Esau's quite content with everything that he has. Esau invites Jacob to come to his home in Seir. He extends hospitality to his brother. And when Jacob makes excuses, Esau kind of tries to settle for a midway point, offering at least to leave some men with him to guard Jacob as he continues to travel. All of these things Esau offers to his brother And Jacob refuses each one of them. And I think the reason why Jacob refuses is because Jacob remains suspicious of Esau. I think that Jacob continues to embrace the idea that reconciliation has actually happened. It's completed. And and here's where I think you say this, or where where I think you see this. Here's why I, I... I think you can trust me that I'm not making this up. Esau calls Jacob in verse 9, my brother, my brother. While Jacob, throughout this passage, continues to refer to his brother as my Lord and continues to call himself your servant. Do you see how different And here's another way in which I think Esau actually embodies the nature of God in our text, whereas Jacob is more like us. Genesis 33, I think, makes clear that Esau really does see the rift, the broken relationship between him and Jacob as being healed, restored. It's no longer something that separates them. Whereas Jacob remains suspicious and fearful He's not sure that the actions and motivations of his brother towards him are good, that his intentions are pure. 
Jacob, I think, clearly wants to get away from Esau. And he insists on a gift of restitution. And he refuses to allow Esau to leave even just a handful of men among his family. Because he's not sure what will happen in that case. And maybe you can see the connection that I'm, that I'm pressing towards. Through Christ, we have been reconciled to God. And yet, how often do we, in unbelief, remain suspicious about the true reality of that reconciliation? How often do we doubt the sincerity of God when God says to us, you are my beloved children, I love you. Can it really be that God accepts us? That he welcomes us? Even after all the ways in which we have wronged him? Can it really be that God rejoices over us and loves us when our sins have been so offensive to him? Can it really be that God would want to be near me when I know that the stink of my unholy life is so incredibly disgusting? Can it really be that God does not count the past against us even though this list is, is so long? The list of my sins and grievances against him? Well, the answer to all of those questions is yes. Do you believe that? Or do you continue in doubt? Do you doubt the sincerity of God's love for you in the reconciliation that he has bought through Christ? Yes, it is true that through Christ we have been totally and completely for all time reconciled to God. God is not pretending. God is not just being polite to you. When he speaks of his love, when he speaks of his reconciliation, God actually likes you. Can you believe that? God knows you. And yes, through Christ, he actually does like you. 2 Corinthians 5, 17-19 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Friends, we have no need or reason to be suspicious of God's kindness towards us who believe. Repent of your unbelief. God loves you. His love is sincere. His acceptance is real. His embrace is warm. His smile is genuine. We are blessed because God does not count our sins against us any longer through the atoning work of his son, Jesus Christ. And even though we continue on as conflicted people, much like Jacob, God still loves us. What's left to us is only to believe that his love is sincere and then remain close to him in that love. Now sadly for Esau, the joy of this moment is fleeting because despite his best efforts to reestablish this relationship with Jacob, that doesn't appear to happen. Esau traveled many miles to come meet his brother. 
He brought an entire camp of men with him. He goes above and beyond to re-engage with his brother. But in the end, all of his efforts are essentially rebuffed by Jacob. And this is really the only moment in the text of Genesis that shows these two brothers kind of reunited. There's one small verse that we'll get to in chapter 35 where the two brothers are once again in the same place at the same time to bury their father Isaac. But it appears from the evidence that we have in the Genesis narrative that these twins, after this moment, become neighbors, but they never again become affectionate brothers. After this brief meeting where these two men weep together, Esau heads south for Seir, expecting that Jacob will follow him because that's what Jacob says he is going to do. But Jacob ends up turning west. He heads into the land of Canaan, the land that God promised to give to Abraham and Isaac. And although Jacob does lie to his brother Esau in verse 14, we can understand why he doesn't go with his brother. I would hope that we can understand. We know why he cannot follow Esau south. And the reason is because God has given this man a command. Go back to the land of your father, Jacob. The land that I have promised to give to you. And so Jacob is compelled to limp on to that place that God commanded him to go. He travels west. He ends up in Shechem where he purchases a piece of property. And for the third time in his life then he builds an altar to God. And he calls it El Elohe Israel. El is the Hebrew word for God. And so the name of this altar could be God, the God of Israel. And so Jacob has now finally fulfilled that promise that he made to God all those years ago when God appeared to him in that dream in Bethel, when he left the land of his father Isaac, and he told God, if you prove faithful and true to me and you bring me back to the land of my fathers, then you will be my God and I will worship you. I will make sacrifices to you. And now Jacob, who's been given the name Israel, fulfills his word and finally and fully declares Yahweh is his God. Now, I want to remind you that this is the story of Jacob's life. One of the things that's kind of difficult about preaching through like Old Testament texts is that there can be a temptation to kind of look for some deeper meaning that is there for us to make it speak to our lives. And, you know, to some degree, we do that when we look at this text, but we do need to be careful in this process of not allegorizing these stories. They are true historical accounts, and that's why they're recorded for us. Sometimes what we're reading is just a history of an event that happened in somebody's life, and it literally has no greater meaning than that. That's okay. It's a part of the story that's ultimately leading us to Jesus. The story that we read in Genesis is the story of these people. And we need to read it as such without trying to make it say more than it does. Okay, that's what I'm getting at. Hopefully that makes sense. Yet having said that, we do know from reading the New Testament 
that many of the things that are true are bigger truths exposed to us in the New Testament that we find illuminated in the Old Testament. So, for example, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Philippi, I am sure of this, that God who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Now, that alone is a promise to the church in Philippi. But if it's true of them, then it's true of every church, every person who entrusts themselves to God. Paul was certain that God is always faithful to finish what he starts. Well, where did Paul get that sense of certainty in the nature and the character of God who does what he says he will do? Well, some of it must have come from Paul's reading in the Old Testament. Stories like Jacob, where we see again and again God is faithful to finish the work that he began in the lives of the people that he calls to his purposes. And so we know that just as God brought the man Jacob all the way home through many trials and perils, God will also bring us home to the true promised land, to his kingdom. Because that's the kind of God that he is to his people. And in that promised land, the kingdom of God, eternity, heaven, everlasting life, known by all these different things, these names, we will live with this God forever in joy and in peace. The broken relationship between God and man forever made right. And all that is necessary for us in this work that God is doing to bring to completion what he began, all that's necessary is for us to trust him, to follow him, to obey him, to give ourselves over to him in faith. All the other details, God's going to work all those out. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are the God who brings these things to completion. And we thank you that you are the God who endures in relationship with conflicted people. God, you search us and you know our hearts. You know that we can be people of, capable of great good and also great evil. You know that we are people capable of great faith and also full of doubt. And God, what I pray is that you would continue to bring us towards greater maturity. That we would be like Paul, able to say that we have fought the good fight, we have run the race, that we have been found faithful to trust you. And so, God, in your grace and in your mercy, supply us with that faith and that trust. Teach us to lean into you. And we thank you again that at the end of this story, we will praise you as we are brought into the kingdom of your love. Not because of our own faith or ability or good works, but because of everything that has been done for us through Christ. Amen.